morning is from the book of Ezra, chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests, of, and, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God has moved, prepared, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from, the, from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar brought all these along with the exile when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Karina. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. And uh, nice to start a new series as well as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah. And this series is going to go for eight Sundays. So this is going to take us all the way up to Advent, just before Christmas. And then we'll have some series leading up to celebrating Jesus' birth. And I was thinking when I was selecting this series and working through it, it's very different to our last series, isn't it? Last series we did was... Um, like a topical series on the Holy Spirit. And, you know, almost entirely in the New Testament, we looked at the Old Testament to start with, but here we're looking at two Old Testament books, and I did a quick check. Uh, apart from one little prayer in Nehemiah, there's no other references to the Holy Spirit in Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's, I think, a great example of the breadth of the content we have to deal with, the blessing that it is to have the Bible, and all the different types of writing and different areas we can look at throughout the Old and New Testaments. All right, so what about Ezra and Nehemiah? What is this all about? Why are we looking at this for some time? Well, I think it's best to start with a little bit of history. So I hope you don't mind. If history bores you a lot, I apologise, but it will hopefully ground us as we look over this for the next few weeks. We're in a, a pretty forgotten part, I think, of Israel's history. Um, it's the last part, really, of Israel's history, Ezra and Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, before uh, Jesus' birth in the New Testament. 
All the sort of very well-known parts of the Old Testament are well in the past. Creation, Abraham, escape from Egypt, all that. All the kings, the arrival on the land and the kings, David, um, that Jeff mentioned before, Solomon and the rest. And we kind of pick it up at this point here, which is when the kingdom is divided into two halves. This is after Solomon's reign. He, he reigned over the entire kingdom. But after his death, the kingdom split into north and south and was divided for the rest of its time. Uh, the northern half was called Israel and the southern half called Judah. And in 722 BC, the kind of world superpower at the time, uh, which was Assyria, a mighty nation to the east of Israel, invaded and took the entire land of Israel. It almost took Judah as well, but it, it didn't quite. And it exiled all the people of the north uh, over to Assyria. And over the next 150 years, Assyria and Israel would have a few battles, but eventually Assyria would be overtaken by another nation, uh, Babylon. Babylon would become the new superpower in the east. So while Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom, was still hanging on, Babylon soon became more powerful than Assyria. And 150 years later, roughly, in 587 BC, Babylon came through and invaded the south, and this time did take Jerusalem and exiled most of the people of the southern kingdom to Babylon. And this is really where our story begins. So I'm going to read a large chunk. I realize that's pretty small font, but you can just listen to the story. This is a good summary at the end of 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them, that's to the people of Judah, through his messengers, the prophets, again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. God's people from Judah, they went into exile in Babylon. It was, it was God's judgment upon them for their sinful practices, for, for disregarding him in their lives. And they, the people settled in Babylon. They, they settled there. They made Babylon a new home. The prophet Jeremiah called them to do this. You're going to be here a while. This isn't a passing visit. Make it home. Make it home for this season. They never really forgot their heritage or their homeland. They never forgot that they were um, Jewish people. But Babylon became their new homeland. Uh, sometimes we see that in, in first-generation migrants to a country. They, they make a new home. Uh, but they do hold on to some of their cultural practices, rightly so, so they continue to remember their background. So they live in Babylon for a while, but then something happens. In 539 BC, uh, just as Babylon overtook Assyria a while before this, a hundred or so years before, now in 539 Persia, a new power overtakes Babylon. This is kind of the rhythm of uh, war in the east, is one power overtakes another. Persia is now top dog, and the new ruler Cyrus, in his very first year, he makes a decree 
that we just heard from um, the Bible reading before. And that decrees also in 2 Chronicles. So just to finish off 2 Chronicles 36 and to hear this again, it's almost identical words. Let me read the last couple of verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. This is the start of Ezra. This is where Ezra begins and Ezra and Nehemiah detail the return of exiles uh, from Persia. The two books actually were originally one complete text um, and they've been divided over time, but they, they cover a period of over 100 years between Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a very long span with three large returns that take place. Um, today we, we're sort of looking at the first one. And they also cover the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the city walls of Jerusalem, re-establishing the system of worship that Jewish people had for many years and re-enacting the Old Testament law. I did a little timeline. I don't know, again, if you find timelines helpful, this is kind of roughly where we are in Ezra and Nehemiah. So Persia takes over Babylon. One year later, the first group returned to Jerusalem, uh, led by a man called Zerubbabel. They start working, building the temple. There's a bit of a delay, but eventually the temple's completed. And then after a, a, a bigger delay, Ezra goes to Jerusalem, the second return with a big bunch. And then a little while later, Nehemiah, he also goes to Jerusalem. And then actually Nehemiah ends up going back to Babylon. So that's kind of the, the big sort of pillars of Ezra and Nehemiah. Today we're just looking at the first, well, really the first three chapters. And I want to draw out three things as we walk through these passages today. Firstly, I want us to think about who's in control. Ezra begins with Cyrus making a decree. These are the first words of the book of Ezra. The entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah begins with the decree of a king allowing God's people to go back to Israel. And there's this interplay, as you read this, between Cyrus's plans and God's plans. Listen to what this says about God. This is the start of, of Ezra. It'll sound very similar to what I read just before from the end of 2 Chronicles. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Historians suggest that the Persians were a little bit nervous at this point in history of the power of Egypt. The only other sort of real superpower with any competition for Persia in the general ancient Near East. Now, the only passage between Persia and Egypt was through Israel, through Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. So they were keen to get Judah's loyalty, to have them as a, a sort of an ally or a vassal state sort of sitting out there. And so they sought to win their loyalty by giving them a measure of autonomy, allowing them to go home to re-establish some of their familiar patterns. Cyrus had a plan. He had a political plan. But we see that God was actually at work here as well, wasn't he? God, the Lord God, moved his heart to make this decree. And it even says this fulfilled God's word to Jeremiah, that Babylon would be destroyed by another power and God's people would leave the land. So here's one example. In Jeremiah, we read, 
Flee out of Babylon, leave the land of the Babylonians and be like the goats that lead the flock. For I will stir up and bring against Babylon an appliance of great nations. I think that should be an alliance of great nations, pardon me. From the land of the north, they will take up their positions against her and from the north she'll be captured. God's plan comes together even while Cyrus was working out his political plans too. And so the people decide to return. Now, interestingly, again, it's not all the people, is it? But in line with God's plans again, it's everyone whose heart God moved, those that God called to come back, come back to the land and establish a new beginning. God's in control here, isn't he? Guiding those that he wants to return. And the people who didn't go back, they supported those who did. They gave them some some riches, some livestock to help them get a fair start in Israel. And incredibly, I think Cyrus even took out all the loot that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that they destroyed, all that stuff that they'd taken from the temple, all the riches, and he actually let the people take it back so they could set up the temple as it was. Again, this is it's genius, isn't it, from Cyrus' perspective? You can imagine the, the perspective these people now have on this new king. They think, oh, Babylon, they were evil, terrible. Persia, Persia's the, these are wonderful people. Cyrus, what a wonderful king, giving us this freedom giving back our wealth, I mean, he didn't have to do that, it's fantastic. The loyalty would have been really positive, their sense of, of Persia would have been really strong. But God's at work, isn't he? This is God's plan he's working out. He's using Cyrus as need be to re-establish his people in the land. All right, let's keep going along. So in chapter 2, we keep reading, and if you get the chance through this week, feel free to read through the first three chapters of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's really our, our section that we're looking at today. Chapter 2, the people who go back are numbered and listed, and they're grouped by their hometowns and their family divisions, their family leaders. And by the end of the chapter, this is what we read happens when they first arrived. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. So the people arrive, they've travelled a long way, they arrive in Jerusalem. Uh, This would have been a shell of a city at this point. Remember, the temple's been destroyed, most of the rich houses have been destroyed, city walls have been knocked down, they haven't been rebuilt yet. There might have even been more desolation over the last sort of 50 to 70 years, no one's really been caring for the area. They arrive, they they make a gift um, towards the temple project. There might have been some who were living in Jerusalem, but most people then go home to resettle. People go back to Bethlehem. People go up to other towns. And so Jerusalem, the arrival happens, but then people spread out. And chapter 3 begins seven months later. For seven months after the arrival, nothing is recorded. Uh, you might sort of wonder what's, what's happening in those seven months when you read the start of chapter three. You think, well, what are the people up to? They're probably trying to rebuild their lives back in their hometowns. You can see people when they come to property after a fire or a flood, they discover what's remained of their houses. There's often grief and eventually there's a time of rebuilding. For seven months, people would have been maybe sowing new crops, trying to build their own houses again, settling in the land. People are trying to get their lives back together. And yet, in seven months' time, they do return to Jerusalem. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, this is the start of chapter 3, the people assembled together 
as one in Jerusalem. Presumably that was something they agreed on previously and they returned to the capital. And then we see what they first do when they gather. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, he's one of the leaders, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord." Now, I find this really interesting, what's happening here. Remember, Cyrus's stated goal for this return, for allowing the people to go back, for actually giving them that freedom, they were under his control in the land of Persia. The purpose for their return was to build the temple. There it is again. I'll go back, sorry. He says, any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judea and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. The people who remain in Persia, they give gifts for the purpose of building the temple. Cyrus returns the stolen items from the temple to be reset up in the temple. As soon as the people arrive, yes, they drop off their gifts, go home for seven months, try to rebuild, come back, fair enough. What do they do first when they come back? Okay, we're ready to go. We've got all this stuff ready to build the temple. They rebuild the altar. And the passage even says this really explicitly. This is done before any part of the temple is built. Oh, I feel like there might be a slide missing there. Oh, there it is. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Now, the altar is is kind of a part of the temple, isn't it? It's part of the temple structure that they would have been building. But it's not really the first part. Firstly, you build the foundations and then you'd start building up from there. You'd build the buildings and you'd start putting the things inside the buildings. But they start with the altar. And I think this is really important. And the fact they draw our attention to it is important too. The people were desperate to offer sacrifices to God. I find this really telling. These people had been in exile, remember, for 50 years. 50 years... They hadn't been able to do this. For faithful Jewish people, the only proper place to offer a sacrifice to God is at the temple in Jerusalem. In the law of Moses, it made it clear all sacrifices should be offered. Sacrifices for sin and disobedience, regular sacrifices. And we just hear they they did those things, didn't they? As soon as they built that altar, they just started sacrificing. Burnt offerings, morning and evening. They started following that festival calendar to offer all the usual sacrifices. They'd been denied this ability. They'd had it taken away for them. For decades, they'd been stuck in Persia, in Babylon, which became Persia. I mean, many of these people, they would have never done this before. This would have been the first time they would have ever offered these sacrifices. They craved this. They craved it. They desperately wanted to make these sacrifices. So given that choice, do we kind of start laying the slab and you know, get the plumbing sorted out? No, they said, look, can we please just get the altar up? We just want to start offering sacrifices. We're in the right place now. We're in the right location. Let's make some sacrifices. They didn't want to have to wait any longer. I think this gives us a window into their hearts. 
uh, window into their hearts. They were weighed down by their sin. They were burdened by it. They felt this burning desire. We want to offer sacrifices to God to have our sins forgiven. They don't wait for the temple to begin. They want to do it now. And so they do. They build the altar. And it says very clearly they followed the Old Testament requirements for the sacrifices. Oh, let's keep going. So the temple building begins. They, they Firstly, they order some items for construction. Um, it says they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre. Those are foreign towns just up the coast. So they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. And then they begin to build. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shelatil, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. Again, there's a time delay, isn't there? It's worth noting that. The building begins on the second month of the second year after they return. So it's about 19 months after they build that altar. Now, there's a lot to organise for any construction. You know, building can take a while. They haven't actually started building until that time. They're just ordering things, ordering the right wood, ordering the right materials. You can probably see why they were so passionate to get that altar up. And during this time, the people probably would have come and gone from their hometowns to Jerusalem, organising the building, getting things set up. And finally, the building begins, and we read that as soon as the foundation is laid, there is celebration. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But interestingly, it's not all celebration. Let me read on. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family head who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. It says some of the older ones, those who had seen the former temple, those who had lived through the exile and then now have returned, they wept when they saw these foundations laid. And there's a clear sense here, this is, this is tears of, of grief, not tears of joy. It's probably because they remembered the glory of the first temple and they just saw there was such a long way to go, such a long way to go. It probably, seeing the new temple being rebuilt, it probably also reminded them of the exile itself, of the destruction of that first temple as they now start to see the new shell starting to be built. I think for the younger ones there, these would have been pretty exciting days, seeing something new, seeing God's work coming together again. This was a, a new season for them, a brighter season than they've ever known. But for some of the older ones, the grief was larger than the joy and they wept. Maybe God was doing something new, they thought, but they knew what was before. They knew what they'd lost, and they knew the pain of that. And the very final line there also points just a little bit towards the next section of the book. It says, the sound was heard far away. I think Ezra is a very good narrator. He's just giving a little teaser for the next couple of chapters. So you can just keep that in the back of your heads for the next couple of weeks, a bit of sizzle for next week's sermon. I want to think about what this passage means for us, and I want to look at those three things again. God's in control, and God works out his plans in the world. That opening interaction between Cyrus and the Lord God is a great reminder, I think, of God's control. Cyrus and Persia, they had their political purposes, but God's plan's being worked out. Nothing's stopping that. And it's not like Cyrus is a godly king who, who worships the Lord. He's a pagan king, a Persian king, 
Although even he in some way sees God's hand here. The main point though is God's in control and moves him as needed. And as God always planned and prophesied through Jeremiah, the people return. Uh, it's a reminder I've given before, and uh, I, even, I wrote a letter this week. Many of you would have received a pastor's letter, and one of my points in that was the reminder God's in control. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when it looks like some political leader's in control, or a certain cultural norm, or, or there's a, a pandemic, or, or even no one's in control, it just looks like anarchy. God knows what he's doing, and, and God's working out his purposes. We don't always get to see God's purposes, um, in Israel's case here, it was pretty clear God was moving through the hand of Cyrus. I think they would have all seen that through what happened. But 50 years earlier, when they were all sent to exile, I don't think they would have been celebrating God's hand. God was still in control then. He was using Babylon to punish his people for their continued disobedience and ignoring him. But I wonder if back then some of the Israelites were confused at what God was doing. And I think that's a feeling we share. I think it's a common feeling. We all often think, God, what are you doing? What are you doing through this particular thing? What's the purpose for what we see going on in the world or what we see going on in our lives? I think the COVID pandemic is a great example of that. Why did God allow that to happen? I actually don't know. Uh, maybe one day I will know. When, when Jesus returns, I'll know. But it is not clear to me now. It's not always going to be clear. But what we know is that God is good and God is king. He is in control. And it's a good thing to remind ourselves when things are uncertain. Secondly, I think, just like the Israelites, we should deeply desire, we should crave for our sins, our, our disobedience from God, our, our heart's rejection of God. We should crave for that to be removed. I think the attitude of the Israelites is really commendable here. That desire, they just wanted to build the temple, without the altar, sorry, without waiting for the temple to be finished. They just wanted to offer some sacrifices, to reconnect with God, to come before God in grief and mourning for their rejection of him, to follow that Old Testament law, offering a sacrifice in their place to take away their sin. Do we have a similar desire? Do we have that deep desire, when we fail God in our lives, when we fail to love God, we fail to love others as we ought, when we give in to temptation in some area, do we crave forgiveness? Do we crave being right with God again? I think the kind of the blessing and the challenge of this for us is our forgiveness is really accessible, isn't it? It's wonderfully accessible. Can you imagine the Israelites had to wait decades until they were back in the land before they could build the altar and, and make the sacrifices to God? For us, Jesus has come. He has lived and died in our place for our sake. The only sacrifice we ever need. And whenever we fall short, we can come to God in prayer, just as we did a moment ago as Jan was leading us. We can confess our sins to God and we can have that rock-solid assurance that we are forgiven. We are forgiven our sins through what Jesus has done. It's amazing, isn't it? Our relationship with God restored, our sins forgiven, taken away, our slate washed clean. So accessible. No pilgrimage to go on, no altar to build, no animals to offer up. Maybe the risk is we can take that forgiveness for granted sometimes. Now, God's people in Ezra, they didn't take it for granted, did it? They knew the value of it. 
They had to work for it. They had to get back and build and offer the animals. But for us, because it doesn't cost us anything, the risk is we can treat forgiveness cheaply. But it's not cheap, is it? It's, it's costly. It costs Jesus his life on the cross. Uh, let me encourage us to crave forgiveness of sin. This is a good feeling to have, to, to desperately want to come back to God and ask for forgiveness and to celebrate, to celebrate that wonderful assurance we have that when we confess our sins, they are forgiven. And finally, I think this is a passage, is a reminder that God does new things. Maybe you can relate to some of the older people in the passage who wept when they saw the foundation of the new temple being relayed. When they saw those kind of, you know, those meagre efforts at a new start. And immediately the memories of, you know, the glory days, they came back. They remembered the the kings and the the feasts and the festivals and the, the splendor of that first temple. Song and worship at what God had done. Thousands gathering together. And they saw this, you know, sort of pathetic start and they just wept. Maybe for some of you here, you even can look back at Warnable from your younger days, from when you were younger here. Maybe even uh, Warnable Baptist Church or a particular ministry here. You think, oh, when the, the kids' church were teeming with, with young ones or, you know, there were, there were booming services, some great things were happening. And we do want to celebrate what's gone on in the past. Maybe it was a particular outreach event that really captured you. And now maybe you walk in the doors and maybe things have changed. Maybe you see an empty pew or two. It can be easy to wonder, can't it, whether God's best days are behind us. I know these feelings. Nostalgia is a very powerful force. But it's something I try to remind myself regularly. God does new things. Jesus would startle his contemporaries many centuries after this temple was built. With his own new way of doing things, he would upturn conventions. He would disrupt the status quo. And I want to say God does new things today as well. And look, I'm saying this in full awareness that we have recently started something new. We've started a partnership with Port Campbell Baptist Church, something new. And I'm the first to acknowledge we're taking a step of faith in this and seeing if this partnership can serve both churches well. I hold this fairly lightly. We will see if this is a long-term Step for the churches? Uh, it may not be, and it may be. I'm, I'm optimistic, I have to say, I'm expectant that God might be doing something new. And so we step forward in faith and we're prayerful and we consider what God might be doing among us. God does new things. Last week I actually went to a combined youth event. Some of the young adults, some of the youth here went as well. A combined youth event between the churches that had over 100 Young people attend. There was lots of energy, lots of fun, a uh, time of worship and song, a great message about trusting God as churches in Warrnambool seek to work together in their youth ministry um, a bit more. God's doing new things. We've been having kids' holiday programs happening each school holidays with lots of enthusiasm, a real sense of vision and passion for kids to learn about God. God's doing new things. Over the summer, we're going to run the food drive again. That will be the fourth time collecting food from around the neighbourhood, partnering again with other churches to help out those in need through the, the work of food share. God's doing new things. In December, I'm very excited about two big Christmas events, Christmas market and a, a Christmas concert, both of which will be happening here. 
great events we can invite our, our friends along to, hopefully so they can hear about the wonderful message of Christmas, Jesus coming as a, as a, as a human for our sake, God sending Jesus out of love. God is doing new things. The book of Ezra is about new start. That's really what it's about. A new start in the land for God's people. And let me encourage us all to have eyes to see the new things God's doing among us, even as we journey through this book. All right, let me pray. Lord God, I thank you for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Thank you that you have recorded the ups and downs, the challenges, uh, and, the, and the splendor and the excitement of the return from exile. Lord, an oft-forgotten section of the history of your people. Lord, I pray as we journey through Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll be guiding us by your Spirit to see more of who you are and more of what you do in the world. And Lord, even from today, I want to give you thanks that you are in control. Even when things are hard, even when our lives are hard or when things seem to be falling apart from what we can read in the news, from what we can see, Lord, you've got a plan. You know what you're doing and you're still the king. Lord, I thank you for that incredible reminder, Lord, that you do new things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be open to what new things you might be doing, even as the people in Ezra's time wrestled with that, Lord, with those understandable feelings of nostalgia, their grief at what was missing from the past, Lord. Lord, we see they're not rebuked for that, Lord, but we see that you're still doing something new. And we just pray that you'd help us to see what new things you might be doing in our world, in our day. And Lord, finally, I want to thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you came as a human being and gave up your life in our place, dying the death, Lord, that we now do not have to die, giving us forgiveness and freedom and new life. Lord, as we read of those people in Ezra craving forgiveness and, Lord, the effort they had to go to, Lord, we're so grateful. We're so grateful we don't have to go on pilgrimage or build an altar or, or offer up an animal. Lord, we come to you in prayer and we say, Lord, forgive us our sins. And we have that rock-solid assurance, Lord, that our sins are forgiven. Lord, help us not to take this for granted. Help us whenever we fall short, whenever we know we need to come back to you, Lord, to crave it, to deeply desire that restoration of relationship with you. May that be our heart's desire, Lord, and may we celebrate the forgiveness you give us so freely. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to conclude our...